This is the All About 80s Music Podcast with John Mysick and Steve Ojello. Hey, this is Steve Ojello, and I'm here with John Mysick. How's it going, Steve? It's going well, John. The 80s brought some of the biggest and most memorable songs of all time. And today, we're looking at a number of massive one-hit wonder songs. This is going to be a lot of fun, so let's not waste any time and get right into it. So, John... If any of the listeners were lucky to be alive between 1980 and 1989, they would have been exposed to some of the biggest, best, and most peculiar songs on the radio airwaves. Songs that left an unforgettable mark on an international scale. So, Mysick, as we look at some of our all-time favorites, a number of quick picks, and a few guilty pleasures... Which one-hit wonder immediately comes to mind to kick off this list? You know, Steve, the one-hit wonder has been with us for the entire history of recorded music. You can go back to the 1950s and the Big Bopper and Chantilly Lace, or the late Richie Valens and La Bamba. You fast-forward into the 60s and you have the Archies with Sugar Sugar. Uh, You know, just these perfect pieces of disposable pop. You know, for the last few weeks on this podcast, we've talked about some of the immortal records of the 1980s. But you know what? There's absolutely a place for these three-minute pop songs, these absolute gems, most often from England, that made one splash on the radio and then quickly sank. But I'm telling you what, I'm going to go with a slightly different approach here. I'm going, to, I'm going with one-hit wonders, but what I'm going to say to you, Steve, is that when we talk about one-hit wonders over on our side of the Atlantic, we're looking at it from a specifically American point of view, because some of the bands I'm about to talk to went on to have fantastic careers in the UK and in Europe. So with that one in mind, I'm going to go with pick number one, Come On Eileen by Dexys Midnight Runners, which dropped in 1982 off their second album, Two Rye. By the time that record hit here, uh, the band fronted by Kevin Rowland were already soul legends with their LP, Waiting for the Young Soul Rebels and its first single, Gino. Uh, 2IA, as listeners probably know, was filled with fiddles and banjos and a lot of sort of Van Morrison Celtic um, inflected music. You know, they, had, they had a great cover of Jackie Wilson said, the Van Morrison song. They had a lovely song called uh, Celtic Soul Brothers, which is when I learned, by the way, that it's pronounced Celtic and not Celtic, even though we have the Boston Celtics on our side of the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, it's a distillation of Kevin Rowland's obsession with old Northern soul records from the late 1970s, when he would travel up to Wigan and Manchester and go to all-nighters there and dance to obscure soul singles brought over from the United States. It was their only hit on this side of the pond, but... Dexys would go on from one more great record. Uh, Kevin Rowland would remain a, so, a very eccentric solo artist in the United Kingdom. Uh, and just recently, the band, uh, three, three, three members of the band regrouped uh, to release a re-released edition of 2RIA, uh, remastered, they say, to their own personal specifications. I've listened to both side by side. You have to have some really gifted ears to hear the subtleties in the audio, Steve. You probably have to have a good record system to hear that yeah and when you're when you're streaming it on digital you're you're, you know you're not going to get a lot of those uh, a lot of those subtleties well i think that that's a great one to kick off this list it represents the decade so well it's a song that has been consistently played on radio since it's released in 82 a song that we always think about when we think about 80s music that's a fantastic one to kick it off i agree uh how about you what's your uh what's your first pick All right, so my first pick for this list is going to be Tacos Putting on the Ritz from 1982. 
1982, the music artist Taco released his remake of the Irving Berlin classic from the late 20s, and it became an international chart-topping hit. The remake was something out of left field compared to the other songs on the radio and MTV at the time, right? If you look at John Cougar's Hurt So Good, Steve Miller Band's Abracadabra, Jay Gow Band's Centerfold. So looking back, it was really a work of pure genius that only somebody like Taco can dream up. There was also a visual element to it as well, right? Taco came out in the video and, and some of the other promo videos he did in his tux and his bow tie with the white gloves and this white powder kabuki makeup on his face, um, donning an LED light for a cane, which was always the cherry on top for me. Tons of great dance moves. This guy was a huge talent and the song was so massively big. For me, it opened up the door to follow Taco over the years and discover, you know, the body of work that he's created over the years, not just in the many remakes that he did from the 20s, 30s and 40s, but also for the original songs that he did in the 80s and beyond. This is, this is just a gorgeous piece of, of throwaway Euro disco. And we were living it in that weird time where, uh, you know, a remade piece of swing music could chart on top 40 radio i mean we had um was it one night in bangkok that came out about a year or so later you know it sort of fit in with this really eccentric and it was always from germany it was always from the low countries i think taco was dutch it had that sort of high-flown sense of drama about it um, and i know your buddies with them and you and you chat on facebook which, which i think is just fantastic i love the song when it came out uh, you know if you put it on right now i will not turn it off i might even sing along um it was a great gateway drug for very young me to uh to swing classics uh and show tunes uh, from a much earlier era since we're talking about crazy songs from germany i i think you have a guilty pleasure pick that you wanted to throw out there. We have to talk about Da 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 by Trio, the soundtrack to a Volkswagen commercial, and Live is Life by the German band Opus. Again, like real obscurities, but both of them, and I, and I hope we fly that music in here uh, while we're talking about it, but just, uh, just, just fantastic little singles, fantastic pieces like Euro Trash disco that are, are near and dear to my heart. Bring me back to a very specific time in my life as well. Yeah, and I, what was that? And Da 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 was 1982. And I think you, you call it Euro Disco, but to me, nothing represents the early 80s better than, than that song. Like when you think about the early 80s, because it sounds so new wavy, it's the perfect 80s song, or early yeah. 80s song, I think. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can kind of draw a straight line between them and Kraftwerk because they've got that sort of minimalist electronica vibe to it as well. All right, Mysic. Time for a quick pick. What do you got? All right, Steve, I'm going to go with The Politics of Dancing, uh, the debut single by the English New Wave band Reflex, released in 1983. Uh, title track of the record of the same name, written by the keyboardist, uh, backing vocalist and band co-founder Paul Fishman. They came, they saw, they left very quickly, but it was just a fun little song, but it was a very political video, uh, kind of pushing it back against this imagined totalitarian regime when all the kids wanted to do um, 
was uh, was dance. And, and on the lyrics, Fishman said, quote, the sentiment of the song uh, is really about the power of when people come together and express themselves through dancing and letting go. During the 1980s, it was in very early days, but in the latter part of the decade, the rave scene was pretty much that message in a nutshell. I don't think some people generally understand the messages, but some get it. So that's all right. So it's all about Steve. The politics of dancing, man. That's the politics right. of moving. The politics of feeling good. That's so beautifully said. Uh, that's so it's, it's, it's poetry. Yeah, yeah, it's poetry. When I think about this song from 1983, to me, it's so great because it it's so new wavy, right? With the synths, the Simmons drums, and the singing style. I had a chance to speak to Paul Fishman in the early 90s, back when I worked at EMI Capital Records, when I was in royalties. I got a little too excited talking to him. <laughs> he stayed on the phone and he talked to me. It was it was great. So I got to ask him a million questions and then we talked, you know, business. He was probably waiting for that royalty check so he could, play the, so he could pay the mortgage for God's sakes. You know what I think the royalties were from? The Living in Oblivion soundtrack, if you remember. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was four, four or five CDs that were, maybe six CDs that were expertly crafted and curated by a guy named uh, Vincent Vero, who I know. I think Living I have that series around here someplace. That Living in Oblivion compilation is just a really good snapshot of New Wave from the 80s. So if anybody has a chance to find that on any of the streaming services, that's your New Wave for Dummies right there. Yeah, I, I threw that song on, I remember we had a class trip to Washington, D.C., and I sat there on a Sunday night before we left early on the Monday, my fingers poised over the play and record buttons on my JCPenney home stereo, waiting for that song, waiting for that song to come on so I could add it to the mixtape I was going to listen to on the bus the next day. That's awesome. And we can, we can spend a whole pod on mixtapes. Oh, hey, there's an idea, Steve. We can spend a whole pod on mixtapes. I have so many cassettes. I have a bin full of cassettes in my basement here. Just I, 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 I have a huge one myself. Isn't it crazy that we got rid of all that stuff because we thought it was going to be obsolete, only to buy it a couple of decades later and try for to about, buy it? For, for about three quarters of what we paid for it uh, back in the 1980s. It's horrible. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, No, so I've taken a turn, so it's pick number two for you, I think, there, Ajala. Okay, and I'm going to give you a good one. Now, we're going back to 1982 again for Survivor's Eye of the Tiger. (laughs) But does that really count? count? Okay, now I'm going to explain why it's on here. So it isn't a one-hit wonder in the way that a band came in, had one hugely successful song, and then they disappeared. I'm putting it on this list because they achieved massive success with the song, penetrating the popular culture on a scale that no other single from that music artist catalog was able to come close to. Not even close. The cultural phenomenon that this song generated was just beyond compare. This was a song on such a massive scale, going to number one in so many countries in 1982, and as we know, it was prominently used in the Rocky Three movie, Right. So in 1982, if you were a 10, 11, 12, 13 year old kid watching the Rocky three movie, when this song came on, you couldn't help but go absolutely nuts. Right. It pumped you up in a way that made you want to go and fight evil villains and all the evildoers of the world. And when those hits came in during the song's intro, there was nothing else like it. I remember seeing kids in the movie theater during the Rocky Three movie getting out of their seats and shadow boxing in the aisles, right? Everybody had Rocky fever, but this song 
intensified it to a level of hysteria. It was everywhere and it became a cultural phenomenon. Even though Survivor went on to have a string of hits in the 80s with the searches over, high on you, I can't hold back. And then they followed up in 1985 with the burning heart from Rocky IV. Nothing could come close to topping the eye of the tiger and the market made on the fabric of pop culture. You know, Steve, you're forgetting the most important thing about uh, about Rocky Three. What's that? He gave the world Mr. T. That's right. That's right. We all love Mr. T. Mr. T playing Clubber Lang in the film, the uh, the villain of the movie, uh, going on to play B.A. Baracus in uh, in the A Team, very popular, long running show on uh, NBC. Where we're really lucky if we were allowed to stay up late to, to watch it on whatever it was Thursday, Friday night when it when it right. ran. I think they positioned it like between Chips and the Love Boat, and it was it was in that that lineup somewhere. It was a fun show. It was a great run. Mr. T has become kind of a beloved American pop culture figure. He had an animated cartoon show. There's a Mr. T action figure. It was, you know, he was, it was, talk about your pop culture phenomenons. Mr. T was a straight up pop culture phenomenon. All right. So give me a, give me a, give me a quick pick there, buddy. Give me a quick. How about I give you a guilty pleasure? Go for it. This is actually a song that I annoy my son Dean with joking around and but yet I also play it in the car and I blast it really loud when no one's around. It's new shoes. I can't wait. (laughs) The song is irresistible, but yet that sampled vocal melody line that they used that was in so many Italo disco songs of the mid 80s. I hate it, but yet I love it. And that infectious keyboard bass line, it sort of has those freestyle overtones, right? In the in the mid 80s, there were a lot of freestyle songs or what people called Italo disco songs. And those songs were jammed down my throat on pop radio in the mid 80s. I mean, all I wanted to do was hear like great pop songs, but those those freestyle songs were just out there so much. And then they all mysteriously went away towards the end of the days, which was just great. I can't help but love that song. It's, uh, thank, you, thank you, by the way. I'm going to have that keyboard uh, hook haunting my dreams tonight until the uh, until well after I close my eyes. Give me a guilty pick of yours. Another guilty pick? You know, I'm actually, before I move on to my guilty pick, because I want to keep those kind of in my back pocket for later in the show, I'm going to go with my, go with my second pick of, of the pod, um, The Glamorous Life by uh, Shuli, 1984 off her debut record of the same name, uh, Sheila Escovedo, a hugely talented uh, percussionist, Latin percussionist from a family of uh, hugely talented Latin percussionists, um, ran into an artist, uh, one Prince Rogers Nelson. You might know him. He, he had that whole stable of uh, of artists around, you know, 84, 85, like the time and... Uh, and the family and all those bands and all those bands in his in his orbit you know and he helped write and produce the glamorous life um had that amazing sax hook on it it had that break with her playing the timbales i'm keeping with this one because although this was her biggest hit um she went on to have another hit of her second record called a love bazaar uh, also for- very princey from i think it's from the, from one of the break-in movies I, I have the video in my mind's eye um and i also remember this record being in my high school radio station and uh, being able to play it into the ground uh, but you know what you come to this record for the glamorous life but you stay steve for its mm-hmm. second single 
for my money, the much better and much less appreciated Belle of St. Mark. So an 80s deep cut for the kids, uh, the kids at home. But she would go on to play for years with Prince, have her own solo career, have a very vital career, even after her association with Prince ended. This is just one of those, again, one of these kind of quirky songs that could have only been a hit um, in the mid-1980s. And in the mid-1980s, pardon me. So this kind of came out of left field, as far as I'm concerned. But, but I, I got a whole Prince obsession that you, know, you, don't, you knew nothing about. <laughs> that we never talked about. We but, don't talk about it. You know, here's an interesting fact uh, that the sax on The Glamorous Life was played by a man named Larry Williams, who played all those famous saxophone lines on all those Michael Jackson songs that we know and love from Thriller and Bad and Off the Wall. Prince was such a driving force of the 80s. I mean, not only did he have his own career, but he wrote songs for Sheila E., for Apollonia's band. For the Bangles. For Shaka Khan. Yep. For Sheena Easton. Sheena Easton, yep. Prince he made, was he made Sheena Easton cool for like a hot minute there. All right, so uh, so give me uh, pick number two for you there, Ajala. Okay, so I'm going to go with a quick pick here. Dan Hartman's I Can Dream About You from 1984. If you ever liked someone that didn't pay attention to you, or if you had a long-distance relationship like so many of us had in the 80s, this song was for you. It was just a fantastic song with a great guitar solo, one of the best guitar solos of the 80s, I might say that was akin to Starship's Nothing Gonna Stop Us Now, played by Craig Chiquito, The Cars, Tonight She Comes, played by Elliot Easton, and uh, the guitar solo on Easy Lover, played by Daryl Stamach, if you remember from Phil Collins' fame. Um, well, you played the, the solo on, on this track, now that you built it up like this. Okay, so it's probably a, a gentleman named Richie Zito, who's who's a big musician and session player, but it wasn't prominently noted in the credits, and I think it's such a fantastic guitar solo, it has to be mentioned. The 80s were not only the decade of big keyboards, they were the decade of guitars, and when you look at Eddie Van Halen, he really set the standard for 80s guitar. When he came out with Van Halen and his own songs, but also playing that famous guitar solo in Michael Jackson's Beat It. You know, I, that was from that film Streets of Fire with uh, Diane Lane, um, kind of a post-apocalyptic <laughs> uh, sci-fi kind of movie. And that's about as far as my knowledge of that film goes. But yeah. Steve, I will say this first, and I don't recall the guitar solo in I Can Dream About You, but I will say that it is one of the few songs to open with a bass hook. Yeah, the opening four, six bars of that is, 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 it might be keyboard bass, it might be regular electric bass, or it could be doubled, but it does open with a bass hook. So the bass player on the pod, this, these are the things I think about. <laughs> I know, and I, I think I talk about keyboards way too much. No, 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 never, never. All right, so I will go. I will go. You know what? For another uh, another quick pick, we will keep it in the princely family, so to speak. I'm going to go with Waterfall by Wendy and Lisa. Wow. The engine room of Prince's backing band, The Revolution, who played on Purple Rain, who played on Under the Cherry Moon, oh, and uh, Around the World in the Day. We're there for his meteoric rise, circa 84, 85, before that band fell apart in 1986 after Under the Cherry Moon, and Prince went on to make Sign of the Times in 1987. But Wendy and Lisa, Wendy Melvoin, the guitar player, and Lisa Coleman, the keyboardist in The Revolution, also... Uh, partners in real life together and are still together uh, 
to this day. God bless them. Yes, well, it's fantastic. Um, Keen from their very rare, they're very rare and very hard to find uh, solo record. I had this single, Steve. Single, mind you, like an actual seven-inch single back in the old days um, that I then put onto a mixtape. See what I did there? We're keeping the keeping the vibe alive that I listened to in the car on my way to high school uh, in the morning. This song was released uh, 1987, peaked at only nine, only at 88. Um, yeah, I see that. US charts. It was not. It was not a high performer, but there is just something about the songwriting in here. Something about the quality of the vocal just a really really original piece of pop by in by 87 in a landscape that was getting a little arid quite honestly i agree we were all ecstatic when lisa went out on their own in 87 and we were very um you know it was like a big anticipation for what they were going to come out with we're behind purple rain the ballad after all right Right. You know, so so this song was a little a little lackluster, but we were all really glad that they made a video and the video got played a lot. And it was a beautiful looking video. Wendy had this beautiful white and gold guitar, big guitar. It was an exciting venture for a lot of music fans that loved Prince and and all the things he did. So so sure. I, I mean, they did a couple of solo albums. It never reached its full potential. I think. I always I always love it when the when the, when the backing musicians step out front. It's the same reason why I love James Eha's uh, from the Smashing Pumpkins, his underappreciated solo album from '97. I love it. I love it when the people on the side come out front uh, and they step out of a egomaniacal lead singer's shadow. Okay, I'm going to give you. Yeah, um, a quick pick for you. Uh, and, and this is one of the great one hit wonders of the 80s right here. Animotion's Obsession from 1984. I, I knew it. What a great keyboard line just comes right at you. It was co-written by Michael DeBars, who we know sang with the Power Station when Robert Palmer didn't want to tour with them back in 1985. And he had his own band earlier, you know, with Checkered Past, right? Holly Knight co-wrote that song with him. She co-wrote Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield and Invincible. She co-wrote Tina Turner's Better Be Good to Me and Scandals the Warrior. So so you know this this was going to be a great song out of the gate. And when I heard it for the first time and I saw the video, they really did a good job with the video. You remember Bill Waddingham's and Astrid Plain, the girl dressed up like Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Like they put a lot of time into that video. <laughs> it felt a little human to me, but yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I'm right there with you. It, it was, and it was. They they used the same the same keyboards in that song, the Jupiter Eight, which is prominently featured, which we talked about before. And, and Bill sounded a little Phil Oakey on the lead vocal there. You got to admit, he did. And you know, I, I will say it's got that great pop and snap uh, bass part on the uh, on the chorus. Uh, again, as the bass player in the pod, it's not one of my favorite songs, but there are some when I break it down into components. There's that pop and snap bass part that uh, that does stick with me. I, I think if you're a keyboard player, you, you really like that song. That's what it comes. That's no, what's, that, what's that? Another Roland on there? That's got to be another Roland. On there. Roland Jupiter Eight, which was which was on everything, everything in the '80s. So that's yeah, that's the keyboard of choice. So I'm going to pick a guilty pleasure here, and this song is from an artist called Matthew Wilder, a true one-hit wonder with Ain't Nothing Gonna Break My Stride from 1983 into 1984. If you heard this song when it first came out, you knew that you were submerged in the greatest decade, smack in the middle of 80s culture and the best years of the 80s, a great quirky tune with a memorable lyric. 
Ain't nothing gonna break my stride. Nobody gonna slow me down. I gotta keep on moving. And that's been my mantra, Isaac, for the last 35 years. You know, Matthew Wilder, handy trivia point, a former member of Stevie Wonder's uh, touring band. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Key, it was probably like a uh, second he, keyboard player. He was a keyboard player in one of Stevie Wonder's touring bands. This song was funny because it was in it was in that kind of uh, ska time signature, um, yeah. just unrelentingly boppy, unrelentingly positive. I, I have the image of him in the video, uh, the fro and the stash, and I think a purple shirt and spangly pants. I mean, ridiculous. This was full on neon day glow. 80s god love him and so that's a true hit wonder he came on the scene with that song and that was it and it was great all right so i guess it's uh, i guess it's my turn you know what i haven't dipped into my guilty pleasures yet steve so i'm gonna go with uh my very first guilty pleasure of the pod tarzan boy by baltimore <laughs> you talk about your euro trash disco this was Italo Disco uh, by uh, Maurizio Bassi and Nani Hackett, released in 1985 in their debut album, Living in the Background. Uh, re-released and re-recorded in 1983, so it had second legs. Um, the refrain, as we all know, uses Tarzan's war cry on the chorus. I think, the, if I remember right, the video has him swinging on, uh, swinging on a vine. It was just preposterous. It, it was. And, and, but you know what? Just gorgeous in every single way. And I just, I, just, I just unapologetically love the song. And that's the spirit of the 80s right there. I mean, there were so many songs that were ridiculous, but they were awesome. And no one cared. It's like the politics of dancing. All the kids wanted to do was get on the floor and dance or roller skate or have fun. And I, remember didn't... Dancing, I remember dancing to this song in a club, by the way. So, yes, I, I totally remember <laughs> And it was a great one to dance to. It was awesome. It, you were a kid and you heard the guy sing like Tarzan boy making those. And everyone on the dance floor was going, Oh yeah. Yeah. And no one cared. And that was, that was the great carefree decade of the eighties. So keeping with that crazy, ridiculous, awesome kind of vibe. I'm going to go with Falco's rock me. I'm a dance from 1985. So to me, this song really represents the spirit of the 80s. We talked about uh, all the curveballs that were thrown at us in the 80s music with uh, like Nina's Luft Balloons that was just all in German. Kenny G's Songbird that was all instrumental. Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy. That was all vocals. So many different songs that came out in the 80s that were just fantastic and outlandish. And Falco came onto the scene, this tall, good-looking, confident dude with this absolutely ridiculous song but he was so confident in the video and he sang it so well and uh it just took on a life of his own and the song came off the heels of the smash movie amadeus with tom hulse and f murray abraham that came out in late 1984 which i've watched a million times over the years just very inspiring you know being a music guy i don't know if if you watched that movie a few times absolutely there are so many different edits of this song yeah, it, was both, it was both in English and German, if I remember correctly. In right? German, but there's there's a Canadian version of it too that starts off with like the guy shouting, "Rock me out with this," with the delay on the "this, this, this, this," and the Salieri edit, where um, there's a gentleman in there just reciting facts about Mozart over like. Oh, I remember, yeah, I remember that one. Uh-huh. 
Can we a point there, though? Of course, Falco, who unfortunately uh, shuffled off this mortal coil uh, some years ago, also rec recorded the original version of Der Kommissar, uh, later recorded by the English band After the Fire, which charted on the in the U.S. like 83-ish, I think. And we all heard the After the Fire version, I think, before we heard the Falco version. And then once I heard the Falco version, you know what? I couldn't go back. That's right. I couldn't go back. It was better. And that was half German, half English, yeah. too. All right, All right. Uh, Steve, I'm going to roll with another guilty pleasure here. And I'm going to go with Heart and Soul by Kapow. That's a great one. 1987, lead singer Carol Decker, who's still going strong. Uh, 36 years later, released a pretty good solo single uh, a couple of years back that was on one of my Spotify playlists. A band named for Spock's girlfriend on the first Star Trek series. This girl from Tapau. Yeah. Yep, yep. And this, I mean, this, you know, this had these great, great keyboard sounds on it. Uh, you know, you probably know better than I what was on the track. Um, but it had that sort of spoken word thing, and then the soaring vocal overdubs, all done by Carol Decker. Um, seemed like for a couple minutes there in the summer of 1987, you could not get away from this one. And I'm pretty sure that if I walk away from my desk here in uh, in my back cave and walk over to my record cabinet, um, that I can pull out the 12-inch single of this song, which is wedged somewhere into my clock. Oh, I'll tell you a quick funny story. I was hanging out with Mysick one night. We were listening to music in his basement. And I, whenever we hang out, I leave it up to him to pick the music. I just leave it into his hands. I went up to get a beer. I come back down and he's got to pow in one hand and he's putting Debbie Gibson on the, on the record player. And I'm like, what the hell? I think by then we, we, we were probably like three or four beers in. So you were just, we were, we were having quite a night. Yes. Totally didn't expect that song from you. That, that is a great song that got another, a great, another great, another great bass riff on that song. Just by the way. Yeah. And I was a keyboard bass too. Right. Keyboard bass, but a great I mean, a lot of those keyboard bass sounds from the 80s, but I don't mind this one. I don't mind this one. It, it was it was a really well, good song. keyboard bass sound. It's got some texture to it. it. It was a really good song that got a lot of radio play on the pop stations in the 80s. Although, you know, you wouldn't admit that you liked the songs to your friends back then. When it was on the radio, you, you didn't turn it off. And it, it was in. You know, this this great period of the mid 80s to the late 80s where every pop song was all keyboards and drum machines. It was just keyboards and drum machines everywhere. So some of the sounds were also dumber, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do a quick pick. Uh, where are my quick picks? There they are. Down to Earth by the English band Curiosity Killed the Cat. So you have to be really paying attention in the summer of 1987 to hear this one. And the only reason I bring this up is because I used to go to this underage club in Hartford, Connecticut with my best friend, Dean. And we would dance the night away and, and try very hard to be cool. And this song was, you know, it made a bit of a splash the summer of 1987. Uh, came, went, very definition of a, uh, of a one hit wonder. Uh, released in November 86 uh, in UK by Mercury Records. Uh, hit, here in the, hit here in 87 and then just disappeared, promptly disappeared without trace. It was, and it was, that was a very small splash that it made. I vaguely remember it. I mean, I had to go, I will admit, I had to go, I had to go look it up and I might be, you know, just for the purposes of our show here being willfully obscure. To me, the song almost sounds like a Paul Carrick tune. You know, it's, it's a good song, but uh, hey, good for you, MySick. It's a nice, clean cut sounding song by a group of nice, clean cut English boys. English boys, yes. Very safe. It's a safe, nice, it very safe. Um, 
Not particularly daring, but, you know, a textbook one-hit wonder. All right, so I'm going to go out with uh, a guilty pleasure right now as well. Speaking of clean-cut English boys, The Promise by When in Rome. Um, this is the soundtrack to the fall of my freshman year of college. Um, I feel like every time I turned on the radio in Westchester County that autumn, this song was on the air. You know, it's got that, it's got that, it's the drum machines, the keys, it's got the soaring chorus, it's got kind of the, the low-key, nearly spoken word vocal. Uh, oddly enough, re-recorded by the country singer Sturgill Simpson in 2014, um, and was featured in the HBO's television series The Leftover. So it's one of these songs that's just kind of had a life unto its own. My old band covered it, was known to cover it from time to time. Uh, just at the outside of my range, but uh, just a fun little song to play and to sing. Yeah, no, it's that's a song that rings in a lot of people's heads over the years. One of the, the really good songs of the late 80s. Okay, so my last pick is an extremely embarrassing one because a lot of girls in middle school and high school did cheerleading routines to this song. Uh, it's Tony Basil's. Oh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine, you blow my mind from 1981. You can't deny the drums that come in, just that powerful drum beat, the Vox Continental organ that is underneath it all. It's the same organ, Mysic, that you would recognize in Elvis Costello's Pump It Up and the Monkees I'm a Believer and so many other songs. And when this song came out in 81, it was very well known that Tony Basil was an accomplished choreographer, right? So when this song came out and it came out so big, you kind of knew what it was all about. Just like when Patrick Swayze came out with his single, She's Like the Wind, which was horrible. But you knew what it was all about. Like, you know, okay, this guy's gonna have one song and that's gonna be that and he's gonna go back to his movie career. And so the same thing. I'm like, here she comes. She comes onto the scene with, with a great video that all the girls loved and a song that was played on the radio ad nauseum. It was just every time you heard it, you couldn't turn it off. It was, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And I'm ashamed to say that I like it. If I were in an 80s cover band, Mysick, like you, the Thompson Triplets, I would want to play this song because I would jam out on that organ, you know. But I will say this, you know, I'd be, I did not hear this song first. I heard the weird Al Yankovic reading of it before I heard the original. Hey, Ricky, his takeoff uh, based on, on, on my love, Lucy, uh, with a killer uh, with a killer accordion standing in for the Vox Continental organ. Just peak early Weird Al on the old Dr. Demento show on Westwood One radio that used to air like god awful late on Sunday nights and you were not supposed to be awake to hear it because you had school the next day and it was only after I heard the Weird Al version that I went and sought out the original Steve it is tough to say which version is superior but it is undoubtedly an indelible 1980s one hit wonder you know, and she, she also did a Spanish version of it, if you remember. It, it was out there. It was out there big. And it was actually the B-side. I, I did not know that. Oh, Mickey, como esta? Como esta? Me gusta más. Hey, Mickey. So it, <laughs> it, it, was, it was out there full force. Like She came out, and there were a bunch of different this song like it it was everywhere for for a hot minute in 1981 i'm just gonna crawl under my desk here all right steve i guess it's left to me to take us out i'm taking us out agello with sort of the example par excellence of the 1980s one hit wonder Mm -hmm. talking about too shy the debut single from the english pop band 
Kaja Gugu off their 1983 record, White Feathers. You know, hey girl, move a little closer. I, you know, that Nick Beggs bass line doubling the keyboard, the Simmons drums, the lead vocal from lead vocal, uh, from Lamal, uh, real name Christopher Hamill, went on to have that single from uh, Never Ending Story some years later. It's hard now to think about it, but in 1983, Kajagoo were like Beatles massive in the UK. They were they were they were out on tour screaming teenage girls storming their buses, storming their hotel rooms. There, you know, there's footage of them running into hotels past these sc- you know, screaming crowds. Nick Beggs and his three friends, uh, Steve Askew, pardon me, little village called Light and Buzzard outside of London. Childhood friends, they formed a band, brought in Jez Strode on drums, brought in Lamal on vocals. That core three fancied themselves serious musicians and all of that sort of teen pop hysteria rankled them. So they promptly sacked Lamal. Um, after the release of that first album, uh, Nick Beggs moved to lead vocals to ever steadily diminishing uh, commercial returns and even to steadily diminishing returns, Steve, on the band's name. Uh, by the time they finally signed off circa 85, 86, they were simply Kaja. Yeah, not right. No, no more Goo Goo. The Goo Goo was gone, gone, and they were simply Kaja. I mean, the funny thing about this, though, is, you know, they got a lot of stick for their hair and for the clothes. But if you listen to them, they could really play. Nick yep. Beggs is a hell of a bass player. You know, you try to break down that part. It's immensely difficult. And that band really, really could play. So I think sometimes they get um, they get short shrift. Again, again a great singer for band. And, and, and that's and the playing the parent on the lion's mouth, too. I mean, Nick is just he's playing in the video. He's yes. weird looking bass that he's he's the actually Chapman, the, Chapman, the Chapman stick. Yep. The Chapman stick. The Chapman stick, that's what it's called. Uh, okay. It's very, it looks very complicated to play, um, and you sing it at, at the same time. So, yeah, they, they were a fantastic band, and I think you and I could both agree that if they would have stayed together, like, there was so much potential there. I agree. This song is, is one of the best one-hit wonders of the 80s, one of our favorite songs, you and I both. Nick Rhodes producing that track to me just gave it its certificate of authenticity. <laughs> Even though it was a great song on its own, I, I think Nick made it, really into the popular version that we all know and love. There, there was such a great future for the band and, and so many great songs that could have came out. And it's like that with so many bands. They just, they, they can't keep it together. You know, some of them do, but it was a shame. Creative tensions and commercial pressures are among the things that uh, tear bands apart uh, with money a very close second. You know, Nick Beggs was such a great looking guy and he's such a phenomenal player and a great singer too. But he just didn't have the, the flavor that I had when Lamal was there. Yeah. It just wasn't the same. It's a, that's, that's a shame. But, but definitely one of the great one-hit wonders, one of the biggest songs of the 80s, and still on my heavy rotation playlist to this day, as I'm sure yours as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. That is all the time that we have for this week. Um, As always, leave your thoughts in the comments below the pod. Like, share, tell your friends about us. Help us spread the word about everything 1980s music. I'm John. And I'm Steve. So for next time, keep it cool, keep it awesome, and keep it totally rad.